Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, it's the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. Let's talk freight. All right, Midnight Freight Broker Nation, welcome back for another outstanding episode of the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. I am your host, Nate Cross. This is episode 43. We are in July of 2020, and boy, is it a crazy time to be living in right now. We've got all kinds of stuff happening with sports. We've got all kinds of stuff happening in the transportation industry, and obviously, we've got our fabulous pandemic issues that we're all dealing with here, but things are looking better in certain areas and not so good in other areas. So we're going to get into all of that. So today's topic is going to be all about selecting the right freight broker agent program. So I've talked with anyone that's W-2 freight brokering, brand new to the industry, existing agents, brokerage, brokerage owners that have their own authority. Uh, I've had uh, transportation sales reps, dispatchers, you name it. And I've had the conversation with hundreds, if not thousands, probably thousands of people about what they should look for in a freight agent program and is a freight agent program the right fit for them because it's not always the case. So we're going to get into that. But first, I've got a sports update and an article from Supply Chain Dive. So for sports, as a Buffalo Bills fan, I recently saw the departure of Tom Brady, TB12, from the New England Patriots, who has since recently been replaced by the previously injured Played two games last season. Cam Newton. So Cam Newton to the Patriots. Bring in in a a new Belichick move to the AFC East right there. That is such a Belichick move, I will say. Here's my thoughts on it. Cam Newton, I like him. I think he's a good quarterback. I don't know how he's going to do this year, especially with his injury last year and his lack of play. I will say, if you've been watching any of his videos he's been putting on social media, the dude is is an absolute beast right now. He's a specimen that is unlike anyone else I've seen coming off an injury. So I will say that I'm excited to see twice a year, or I guess twice this year at least, the offense under Josh Allen up against the offense under Cam Newton. I think that's going to be outstanding. So he got like a $7 million-ish contract. Most of it is in incentives. So they didn't really bargain, or they didn't really bet a whole lot on him. Um, I think you might see the Patriots have him for a year and then make a move. You know, we'll, we'll see how it pans out. I just can't see him in that organization for too long. I'm excited for it, though. I don't think he's going to perform to the level that we've seen in the past, though, especially coming off the injury like that. Although, who knows? And who knows what NFL is going to look like regardless, especially with coronavirus. Speaking of which, at least the Buffalo Bills organization this week released their statement to season ticket holders about how they're handling tickets this year. So they are no longer taking any payments or requests to get season tickets purchased by any of the fans this year. Um, as of right now, they've, they've halted all of that because they're not sure what game attendance is going to look like. Uh, there could be separation of spaces, so they may not be able to offer all the seats. So what they're offering, though, is the ability to opt out for the 2020 season and still maintain your seniority and uh, your actual seat position in the stadium 
for the 2021 season. So interesting move there. Uh, Additionally, in NFL, ESPN just giving my boy Josh Allen a whole bunch of crap saying that it's his make or break year. You know, he had all this incomplete, you know, his completion percentage last year was was, you know, pretty awful. And, you know, just like any of the other folks coming into their third season, he's got to really show up and he's going to. I'm telling you, J.A. all the way. He's going to show up. Buffalo Bills, AFC East champs 2020. I've said it before and I'm saying it again. So that's the update on the NFL. Um, In the rest of the sports world, you've got COVID popping up everywhere. I don't know what's going on. You've got golfers. You've got hockey players. You've, You've had NFL players. Man, this is getting wild. And you've seen these these upticks in certain states. I looked at some curves the other day, and my wonderful state, Empire State of New York, has we peaked a couple months ago, and we have really flattened this thing, this curve, uh, pretty well. I guess that is, you can attribute that to the ridiculously slow reopening that we've seen. Um, but I'll keep my opinions on that out of it. But the good news is we haven't seen the kind of spikes in the curve that other states have been seeing. So I'm not a health expert or a pandemic expert or a disease expert. Uh, just just a guy that's going to bring you the facts here. So that's it. Going to be interesting to see how everything goes. First of all, as well, happy 4th of July weekend to everyone out there. And thanks for being a continued group of listeners. I've had a lot of people reaching out to me lately, asking for help, asking questions, giving me recommendations for future episodes. And I'm going to start having people on here, not just me talking anymore. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Article from Supply Chain Dive. It is titled, Freight Market Slows, I'm sorry, Freight Market Shows Slight Improvement in May. Rather than read through any snippets out of it, I'm going to give you the the overall bottom line up front here. You can check out the show notes for the article link. It's a good read. It's a quick one, only a few minutes. So here you go. May. All right. Now, I mean, I guess we should be talking about June now that we're in July. But as far as May goes, we got the good stats there. Freight market up from April, 1.6%. So that's good. It's not a whole lot of change, but it's up. It's in the right direction. But it's also down 24% from 2019. So year over year, not looking too good. Uh, Freight spend overall is down 21% year over year. That is probably an obvious given right there. We're not fully reopened. You're not going to see the same kind of freight spend from all the companies. Uh, Line haul rates. Okay, that's your rate per mile or however you want to calculate it. Down 7% year over year. There's been all kinds of people going nuts about the rates and brokers are being a-holes and they're price gouging and they're, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Um, They're going back up. They are. Look at the data. CAS has really, really good data out there and so do all the other good rating tools. Um, They're still down year over year, though. 7% is not as bad as what people were seeing a couple months ago, though. In addition, driver hiring is down. So there's actually a portion of that article that discusses a specific company that had to regulate their level and speed in which they recruit and hire and onboard new drivers because of the lack of freight available. Now, that's kind of obvious, but it's something you don't think about, right? So driver hiring is down. Now, one quote I will give you, it did state, medium-term freight demand will likely depend on how quickly consumer spending and manufacturing activity recover and the extent to which current inventories are worked down. Yes, obviously, but worth noting, as I've always said, as the economy reopens, consumers start spending more money, 
there's going to be more of a demand to move goods around the country, which leads to more trucks driving, supply-demand curve, rates will go up. We'll all be happy again. But don't forget, this is not the last time this is going to happen. It's not the. Hopefully, it's the last time we have a pandemic in our lifetime or in our generation, but it's not the last time the market's going to fluctuate like this. So always be prepared for changes. Always be prepared for the rates going up and the rates going down and the, the drivers. Maybe there's a driver shortage. Maybe a driver surplus. Maybe uh, government regulations. There, I talked about it in a previous episode. There are a million and one reasons that the state of the freight world and freight market can change. All right. And this is clearly one of them. All right. So let's get into the topic today. How to select the right freight broker agent program. All right. So if anybody is new to the agent world, this is going to be great for you. If you're already an agent, then I'm just going to highlight some stuff that you should look for. I've talked to probably 50 plus different companies that offer agent opportunities. Um, I have talked with Hundreds of people that have come from, well, I've talked to people that have come from hundreds of different agent programs, and I've talked to a lot of W-2 sales reps or freight brokers that have never heard of an agent program. So this is going to be good. So let's get into it, all right? What is an agent program? First of all, a ten, I talked about 1099 in a previous episode a couple times. If you are a 1099 independent freight broker agent, you are acting as a sales a contracted sales representative, essentially, for a licensed brokerage, okay? Depending on the specific company that you're with and their agreement and their arrangement and their procedures and processes, they're going to look a lot different. But in a nutshell, you are not an employee of the company. They are not your boss, but you have the ability to work under their authority, under their insurance, bond, all that stuff, and you can service your customers as an independent contractor. So, you get paid commission. There's no base pay. You really don't have access to a lot of benefits because you're not an employee. Uh, there's some gray area there that I've seen companies do. But that being said, you are an independent sales rep. So picture, uh, you know, your local state farm agent or your local insurance agent, right? They are not the owner of the company, but they have a branch. Now, there's different requirements to sell insurance than there is to sell freight licensing and stuff like that. Same with real estate. But the agent concept still goes along with that. All right. You are basically being sponsored or hosted by a parent company and you get to operate independently under them, oftentimes using an S corporate LLC, but also a lot of times you could just do it as an individual person. Okay. But either way, instead of getting a W-2 at the end of the year, which will tell you your earnings, and your withholdings, you will receive a 1099, which is an IRS form that says, here's how much you earned, you have to pay tax on that. Okay, so that is what an agent is, okay? So I recommend don't start off as an agent, all right? You may want to learn from an agent and maybe be an employer or a sub-agent of them. Um, I think the agent role is really good for somebody that knows how to broker, has customers, wants the freedom and flexibility to work from home and wants to make more money and bet on themselves because they're straight commission and they can earn a whole lot more by doing that than if they stick with a base pay with a small commission incentive that goes with it, okay? So when you see, and I'll get into compensation and stuff like that, but let's give you an example. A W-2 freight broker might make on average $40,000 a year in salary and they might make somewhere from five to 20% 
commission on their loads, you know, that could be a draw, that could be after they hit a certain goal, that could be all across the board, all kinds of stuff. Whereas a freight agent is making $0 in base salary, but they're bringing business, business to the table and they are going to receive commission typically ranging from 50 to 70%. And there's an asterisk on that because there's a lot of different offerings that kind of play around with the numbers and mix things up a little bit. So, uh, But overall, that's the big change. So if you're experienced, you've got the customers and the business and you know what you're doing, great, great way for you to take your career to the next step. And really, you could be an agent for the rest of your life. I've seen people that go from being an employee and then they become an agent or an agency owner, whatever you want to call it, and then they might even get their own authority. Right, But a lot of people, if they don't like doing the back office work like billing and handling claims and credit, they'll just stay as an agent and take that commission split for their entire career. All right. Now, that's what an agent is. What are the things that you should look at? Now, every company is going to offer a little bit of a different package. Okay, So make sure you know what you're getting into. If you're talking to a recruiter, ask as many questions as you can. You can tell a lot about a company by the person they have recruiting for them. If that recruiter does not know what they're talking about, they probably have a subpar program. If you talk to a recruiter that's very, very knowledgeable and they know their stuff and they can paint a great picture for you on how that company operates and what it means for you, they give you that so what, that's a good, that's a good company to be talking with. All right. There's a lot of good ones out there. Okay. So first item I want you to look at is support. What kind of support is this company going to offer you as an independent freight agent? Okay. So for example, in support, what, what departments do they have? What are they taking care of for you? So do they have a credit department, right? Are they going to vet out customers for you based on the credit worthiness and the customer's average days to pay and how many claims they've had and how many unpaid invoices they've had, right? Do they have a carrier sales department that's going to assist you with dispatching or maybe quoting? Do they have an agent development department that's going to help you with your long-term growth and talking with customers, working through certain RFPs, RFQs, proposals, customer visits, all kinds of stuff like that? Um, do they have a good carrier development or carrier relations department that's going to vet carriers out for you and use all the tools with Safer and uh Carrier 411 and looking at all kinds of different stats out there to tell you if a carrier is good or not good. Okay. Do they have a claims department that's going to take care of claims for you? Do they have, you know, you name it, department? Do they have a good IT department that's going to help you with technological issues or advances on the software? Do they have a marketing department that's going to assist you with promoting yourself as a brand or helping sell yourself as a member of that organization? All things to look at. So ask these questions. Next part of support is their hours of operation, okay? So you might be located on the East Coast and your brokerage company might be located on the West Coast or vice versa or anything in between. You wanna make sure that the hours that they're open and able to support you match up with your business. Not every agent-based company is gonna have 24-7 support. A lot of them will advertise it, but it's maybe on call, okay? And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think if you can advertise and actually follow through with a on-call 24-7 support, that's great. Uh, realistically, though, if you're only open from eight to four or eight to five you know, for one time zone, you know, and then everything after that, you just go dark. That's not going to be a really good level of support because what happens, let's say you're located on the East Coast and you, you're, I'm sorry, your brokerage is located on the East Coast, but you're located on the West Coast. They close down at five o'clock on Friday and they don't open up until Monday, eight o'clock. Well, that's two o'clock on Friday for you. So what happens when you've got an issue that afternoon or that night and you can't get a hold of them that day or the next day 
or the next day until the next morning, that Monday of the next week. So the hours of operation are going to be crucial. So do they need a a full crew 24-7? No. But do they need a skeleton crew or some kind of on-call or on-demand type of support if there's a carrier approval needed on a Saturday or a customer credit increase or full customer setup on a weekend? 1,000%. You got to have that. Unless you are so comfortable working those standard bank hours, I would, you know, which that's fine if you are, but look for that. Ask the questions. When are they open? What are their support hours? Also, where is their support located? Are they using people that are in-house or do they have people that are maybe third-party contracted through a, you know, maybe an offshore, I've seen the uh, overseas or the, the offshore, nearshore companies that are in Colombia or they're in Europe, um, India, there's all kinds of stuff. So be mindful of ours and also who those people are. Now, expertise of your support team. Does your carrier relations person know the ins and outs of setting up a carrier? Are they going to help you make decisions that are going to mitigate your risk and be best and most wise for your business overall? Same thing with credit. Are they just going to hand out crazy lines of credit and then maybe it comes back on you um, with a chargeback if they have chargebacks? These are all good questions to ask. Is it being led by an industry professional that knows what they're doing and has taken that company in the right direction, right? Even ownership overall, are they owned publicly, privately by a uh, equity firm? You, you got to ask this stuff. Know who you're dealing with, know where they come from, know their background, right? You might have a company that is, they've brought in the right people from other parts of the industry. Maybe they've got an LTL guru, they've got a operations guru, a sales guru, um, you know, all kinds of good stuff. These are really good questions to ask. Now, staff to agent ratio. Do they have enough support staff in their brokerage office to support the agent network, right? So whether you've got 500 agents or you've got five agents, there's going to be an appropriate amount of staff on the back end to support that. So can one person support five agents? Yeah, probably, depending on the volume of business. But can one person support 500 agents? No. No unless they're all not doing any business. Um, but it's a, it's a good, you know, it's a good thing to have. I've seen companies that have, um, I'll say maybe one support staff per 10 agents, right? Uh, or maybe one per five or six. It all depends. You know, the larger you get and the bigger you scale a brokerage company, you can get more efficient with technology and just proper procedures to make a person's job a lot easier. Uh, but just make sure you understand that. You know, how many people do they have that are there to help you out? Because what if someone's sick or on vacation or something comes up or they're busy, right? Do they have backups? Good question. Uh, number of agents overall, right? Are you just a number in their pool of agents? Or do you have that family feel like you're actually part of that organization? They know you by name. They know all about you and your personal life as well as much as you want to let them know. Um, do they know your business very well? Are they in tune with you? Or are you just a number producing money for them? Profits, right? Um, it's a it's a very good thing to look at overall. That all comes down to culture. And I'll talk about culture in a minute as well. But that the agent base size, I think, is huge. For example, um, Landstar is a massive company with a lot of agents. Um, they've got agents that are so large, they are not even known as Landstar, but by other companies, right? And then they've got their own sub agents under there and it gets, you know, the rabbit hole can go very, very deep. The issue you run into with a large agent, agent size typically is going to come down to the account saturation. So if you've got thousands of agents, think just like, you know, at TQL where there's 6,000 brokers or whatever it is, right? 
and they're all fighting for the same accounts. And then these customers get called on by the same 10 people. Um, or you can't set up your customer or bring them over because somebody else already has them and has that lane. Um, or also, how do they handle that? If another agent is working your account, can you share it? Is it exclusive? Questions to ask. Um, okay, carrier sales I head on. Do they have that dispatching ability to help you cover freight when you're sick, out of the office, busy, or you want to bridge the gap between being a one-person show and hiring your first employee? Do they have that? Great question. Setup times. How fast can they set up a new customer with credit? How fast can they set up a new carrier to get approved or update insurance for a carrier so you can haul a load with them? All right? If it's taking more than like 10, 15 minutes, they're not really at par. Uh, but, you know, it's all, all your preference. You might not need a whole lot of those. Uh, next thing is the process to do that. Is it simple to set up a carrier? Simple to set up a customer? Simple to handle a claim? Simple to ask a question? How, how easily accessible is their management team or their ownership? Okay. So that's all about support. And I think that is probably one of the most important pieces to the puzzle here. Next thing I'm going to hit on is, is the technology piece, okay? Um, I have seen agent-based companies that do not even have a TMS. Or they just use, like, you know, Truck Stop or DAT's TMS online or dispatching tool, which, hey, at least you got something. Uh, I literally had a guy that I talked to, and I said, hey, you know, what are you using for software right now? He's like, Nate, using pencil and paper. And I, I died. I almost, I almost fell over because I was shocked. But he had been doing it that way for so long that he didn't feel a need to have anything better than that. Um, so look at what their TMS is, all right? Is it something that you're already familiar with? Is it easy to use? Is it customizable? Is it something you have to pay for? Is it able to be used on a Windows and a Mac? Is it mobile-friendly? Is it web-based? Is it downloadable? All this stuff you got to figure out. So TMS, at the end of the day, it's a piece of software to get your job done. None of them are perfect, but they can tremendously change how easy your job is. All right, so mobile usage I mentioned. Can you use it on your phone? Is there an app? All that stuff. Load boards. What load boards are they using? Are they using just Truck Stop? Are they using just DAT? Are they using both? Are they using more? Do they have integration into their TMS? So when you build a load, it auto posts and auto refreshes every X amount of time. Right? This is all important. It saves you time. Do they charge you to have load boards? You know, it could be a few hundred bucks a month. You never know. Is it free? You got to ask these questions. All right. Reporting tools. Can you run your numbers? Can you run your commissions? Can you see top carrier usage, top shipper usage, margins, days to pay, customer agent? Can you see all that stuff in your software? Do you have the ability to do that? Those are crucial. Some people ignore those reporting tools. I think they're very, very valuable. Okay. Now the setup and vetting process for carriers, I already kind of mentioned, but is it, is it simple to use? Is it integrated into the system? Okay. You got to ask these questions next. And the big one compensation. It's all about the Benjamins, right? How much money are you going to make? But compensation folks, it goes beyond a commission split. That's a big part of it, but it does go beyond that. So compensation, let's look at that commission split. First of all, how much are they going to pay you as a percentage of your profit that you produce? Are they going to pay you 50%, 60%, 65%, 70%, 68%, 75%, 80 90 I've seen all kinds of stuff. Industry average, if you're a good agent, you're going to see 70%. I call that a baseline, okay? Now, I've seen situations where an agent really isn't, you know, maybe they 
it's a better situation if they make 50 or 60 because they're getting offered a whole buttload more of support and ops back up from that brokerage where they will take a lesser amount because they can produce more business that way. Maybe they're using like a carrier sales or a dispatching team and they take a smaller percentage. Um, totally understandable. Um, when you start seeing 80%, 90%, it is very hard to maintain a business at that slum of a margin for the long term. So companies that have offered 80 long term on all their agents tend to not be around a couple years later. So keep that in mind. Look at how long they've been in business. I don't even know how I forgot to mention that one. Um, but if you can get 70% and you've got good margin, you've got good levels of profit, you're doing 20, 30, 50, 100K a month, right? Solid, okay? Um, not saying you have to do that much to deserve 70%, but you definitely shouldn't be taking less than that, okay? Now let's look at fees. Are, so out of your commission, are they charging you for anything? Are they charging you a technology fee? Are they charging you a setup fee? Are they charging you for load boards or for a phone system or for email or for direct deposit or for wire payments, ACH, all that stuff? Are, what are, at the end of the day, are you getting a true X percentage, right? They might say, we are gonna pay you 75%, but we're going to take out you know, X percent for a bad debt escrow. We're going to take out X dollars per month for technology fee, uh, X dollars for this, that, and the other thing. And then next thing you know, your 75% just became 60%. I saw a company that offered a 100% commission and charged a flat 5% rate off of receivables. Do you realize, do the math on it. You have to maintain a pretty stellar margin percentage for that to be worth it. Think about it. If you do operate at a 50%, I'm sorry, at a 10% margin and you're paying 5% to that company, well, you're only getting half of it now. But hey, if you're operating at 20%, which is above average, and they're taking 5%, well, you're actually getting three quarters of that. That's 75% commission right there. Uh, what other kind of fees are they charging you for? Do they charge you for any additional services or load boards you want to access to or any organizations that you want to be part of? Right? Do they provide you with the ability to you know, go visit a customer and you're going to uh, do that with them and you know, pay for the customer's visit? Are they giving you any kind, is there any kind of uh, award ceremonies, incentives, bonuses, you know, maybe rewards like a, you can have a contest and win a trip? Okay. What, you know, what is the overall compensation? Look at this stuff. Can you get insurance? That's a gray area, but can you get insurance? And are they going to contribute to it? Probably not. Um, so compensation is a full spectrum thing to look at. Don't just look at commission split. Okay. Uh, curious to hear from people out there what you're making. I, I did a, I self-proclaimed largest independent study of freight brokers. I did it a couple years ago. It was like, I think five or 10,000 people. I sent out, had a survey to win an Amazon gift card. And I collected data for what people were making for commission, what their favorite thing was about their company, that what they least liked about their company. And some of the commissions out there were wild. I was surprised to hear how many people were making 50%. So, and also, what if they have an asset division? How is your commission paid on that? Ask those questions. Next, culture. I've only got two left, so I'm not gonna be too long here. Culture of the organization. This is important and often overlooked. Know who you're dealing with. Is it a publicly traded large company? Is it a privately owned company? Is it a family owned business? Is it a 
a private equity firm that owns them? Is it recently changed ownership? You know, all this stuff. You have to look at it. Not saying that any one of those is better than the other, but it's all preference, okay? If you want to go to a company and feel like you're part of the family, you probably want to work with a small to medium-sized private family-owned business. If you want to go to a company that is going to leave you alone, stay out of your business, and they have a huge financial backing from investors to invest in all kinds of stuff, maybe you want to go to a uh, publicly traded or a PE-owned, private equity-owned um, organization, okay? Things to just consider overall. Now, size of the company I also mentioned as well. How much are they doing a year in business? What is the average agent doing there in business? What kind of agents are they hiring? I shouldn't say hiring. What kind of agents are they signing? Are they retaining? How long are they retaining agents? Are they taking care of their agents? Can you talk to some of their agents when you're vetting them out to get feedback and a testimonial from that person? Okay. Um, other things, you know, who can you call? How easily can you get a hold of the ownership, like I mentioned before? How easily can you get a hold of your point of contact, whether it's your recruiter or if you have an agent development representative or an account manager, someone that's managing you as a escalation point? How easily can you get a hold of them? Can you call them at Friday night at 11 o'clock? Can you call them on Saturday or Sunday? Can you get a hold of them via cell phone? Can you text them? Is it all over email? That culture and that, it's kind of relies on support too, but that is huge when it comes to having a good, successful relationship as an agent for a company, okay? Um, additionally, right, like I said before, are you just a number? Or are you a valued member? How much are they reaching out to you and talking to you about stuff? Is it more of a you have to push you know, information to them or are they pulling information from you and keeping an open line of communication with you, okay? How are problems handled there? Do you have the, I'm just gonna pick a name here, I think the common name right now is Karen, right? Or uh, I forget what the guy version is, but do you have a? Do they have a Karen, right? That person that just you know they're not going to help handle your problem. And I apologize, millennials, if I'm misusing the the term Karen right now. Do they have that person that when you try to get help, they are doing everything in their power to tell you no when they should be telling you yes, right? So look at how problems are handled. And that's when talking to another agent or getting a testimonial is going to help. You may even want to talk to someone that was an agent there in the past and left and find out why did you leave there? What did you think? You know, and then you, if you find out some issues, you can address them. You know, has this been taken care of? Has this been addressed and fixed? All right. So problem, how problems are handled, I think is huge. Like I said in the past, as logisticians, we are problem solvers and solution creators. So not just as the broker yourself, but that back office support, they have to have that same mentality, right? If you're fully agent-based, your company is producing 100% of its revenue from independent agents. So it is your job and duty as a back office rep to do everything in your power and that's ethical and legal and is, makes sense, business sense, to do the right thing and help them out and support them. All right, um, is it a cookie cutter model, very black and white? Or are they flexible? I've heard the, the phrase, we are flexible enough to bend or flexible enough to not break or something like that. And I liked it because, you know, not everything is set in stone. You can, you can have addendums in an agreement. You can change some processes if it makes business sense. Not everything is cookie cutter, black and white because no agent's book of business is identical, okay? Now, 
final, and this is more of like a uh, little bonus here or an extra, but think about some of these other additional things to consider. Memberships, are they, you know, what is their status with TIA or with UIIA or with the intermodal, the IANA, right? Um, are they part of the NASTIC organization, right? What organizations are they part of? And does that even help you at all? Because some of them don't really do anything for you, but some of them can be very helpful. Like for example, UIIA, if you're doing any intermodal work in and out of ports or rail yards, you know what I'm talking about. They got to be set up and they have to be able to do that. And you got to be asset based. Okay. Next point, are they asset based? And what does that actually mean for you? Do they have one asset? Do they have three assets? Do they have 30 to 50 or hundred plus assets? Those are all points that can really help you get in with customers provide capacity to customers, be able to bid on customers even as a broker, okay? Also, like, you know, being asset-based allows you to check the box on certain requirements like UIIA or select this load board, okay? Um, Bonus products, right? What else do they have that's going to help you out? Okay. Do they have marketing materials for you? Do they offer you business cards? Are they going to give you some swag items like cups and mouse pads and pens to send out to your customers and your carriers? Um, do they have those corporate events where everyone gets to come in and meet each other and you know share best practices and do a nice little think tank? Right. All, all kinds of cool stuff there. Marketing. Are they going to help you create brochures and a website and a LinkedIn page? Okay. How are they with LTL and Rail? Can you even do LTL and Rail? Do they have direct pricing? Do they go through a third party? Okay. Quoting. Can they help you with quotes or trying to figure out how to price something out? Are they growth minded? Are they going to help you with agent development long term and how to target certain accounts and how to grow your business? Are they identifying what you're doing strong and where you can improve? All right. Overall, are they flexible? That is the key takeaway. Are they going to mold their support to your needs? All right. So that's it. Those are my big categories, right? Support, technology, compensation, culture, and all those bonus extras. You got to look at all this stuff, not just what is your commission split, okay? I've talked to many people, that's their first question. What do you guys pay? What do you guys pay? What's your commission split? So, okay, well, I can, I can tell you that, but uh, you might not know that, you know, this, that, and the other thing. So, you know, it's a, it's a big decision when you partner with an agent-based company as a new agent for them. So make sure you're spending the time vetting them out just as they should be vetting you out because every agent-based company wants to have quality agents and every agent wants to have a quality brokerage that's backing them. Okay. Nobody should look at it as a stepping stone. It should be a long-term business partnership that you hope never ceases to exist. Okay. So that's my take overall on how to select the right freight broker agent program. Look at all those things, ask the questions. Let me know too. If you're looking at a certain company, I probably know who it is and I'd be happy to give you some feedback on it. Okay. Also, if you're looking to become an agent, give me a call too. Be happy to chat with you about some good recommendations that I've got. Now, trending and social media. I got three questions here. Kyle says, what is the best way to obtain shippers without having many relationships? Simple answer is to compile a list of contacts from various different sources and start to contact them. Cold calling, right? Cold call, email blast, but really cold calling. The cold calling is probably the most efficient way. Now, there's all kinds of ways to make a cold call a warm call, right? And remember, the point of a cold call is not to close a sale right away. It's to create a level of interest and intrigue with that person to find out if you can even help them with their problems with your solutions. So, you know, cold call, that's my best recommendation. Or, you know, hop on the phone regardless, Kyle. That's the best way to do it. Angel asks, 
A broker posts a load 200 miles away from the actual pickup. Should they pay for deadhead? This is a good question. So it's a deceiving post. If I was the broker and I did this by mistake, I would absolutely compensate, reasonably compensate for that deadhead. Now, if there's a legitimate reason that this was mistaken, like, oh, the first pick actually dropped it fell off, so we're going to skip that one and go to the second pickup or second location. You can explain that, hey, sorry about that. I'm actually going to change the post now. Um, I don't have any. I don't have the ability to pay for the deadhead because the customer actually canceled this portion of it, so we're not getting paid for that anymore. Um, so, But if they do it to be deceiving or get you to call them, it's pretty dirty. And, you know, they're probably not going to pay you for it and you probably don't want to do business with them. But if it was an honest mistake, I, yeah, I do think that there should be some kind of assistance to pay for that deadhead, if it makes sense. Okay. Lastly, Antonio asks, agents, does your brokerage pay for load boards and other expenses? Um, I already gave you my spiel on what to ask for. Now, Antonio was actually not an agent. He was a he owns or runs an agent-based company, and he was asking to try and solicit some feedback. And I was shocked at the mixed responses that people were giving on this. People were saying, of course they do. And some were saying, no, but it's only X amount a month. So personally, if you're putting up decent numbers and you're worth your seat at that company and then some, you shouldn't have to pay for your load boards. That should be part of the percentage, the percentage that you're giving up to that brokerage company off your profits. But if you're moving one load a month and they're paying for load boards and they're losing money on you, then no, they should not be paying for load boards and you probably shouldn't be an agent there. So that's my take on it. Great questions, Kyle, Angel, and Antonio. Thank you very, very much. Like I said before, good things are coming on the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. We're going to start getting some cool expert additional people on here. I got a good friend of mine that's going to hop on probably in the next episode or maybe the one after that. So stay tuned. Until next time, let's go Bills. That wraps up this episode of the Midnight Freight Broker Podcast. Thanks for joining and make sure to leave a review and check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that I referenced on this episode and feel free to add and message me on LinkedIn for suggestions for future topics. See you on the next episode. Testing, 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 one, two, three.